Beloved, if you will join me in turning in your copy of God's Word to Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 15. If you're using one of the black Bibles that we provide, this would be on page 1006. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. We've been working our way through the book of Hebrews, and over the past several weeks, we have been considering the priestly role of our Savior Jesus Christ, how he is the priest of a new covenant that God has given to us in him. And our passage today continues that theme as we consider this covenant and his priestly work. We consider how we can have certainty that the promises that we have are truly ours. So out of adoration and love for God's word, please join me in standing as we read this passage together. For this is indeed God's holy, infallible, inerrant word. I'll read Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 to 22. Here now, for God does speak to us through his word. Therefore he, Christ, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses... To all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins." Let's pray together. Lord God, indeed, this is your word. You have breathed it out. You've given it to us for our teaching, rebuking, correction, and instruction. So, Father, this morning, as we sit under your word, would you instruct us? Would you uplift our hearts? Would you equip us to persevere in the midst of our lives and to worship you with joy? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Our God has given to us great and amazing promises throughout Scripture, throughout His Word. He has made great promises to us, and we have been saying as we've gone through the book of Hebrews that the promises that God gives to us come by way of His covenants with us. Students, I hope you remember that a covenant is a type of a relationship that God makes with his people. It is through a covenant that he declares his promises. He declares the the conditions of our relationship. And God is a covenant-making God where he makes lots of promises throughout Scripture. He made covenants with Abraham and with through Moses and with David. And the greatest of those covenants, as we've been saying, is this new covenant that God has promised, that is a new covenant in Jesus Christ. And you might remember from a few weeks ago, we talked about the promises that God makes to his people in the new covenant. Three major 
and glorious promises. He promised that he would put his law in our minds and write it on our hearts. He promised that he would forgive us our trespasses and remember our sins no more. He would no longer hold them against us. And the greatest of those promises was, he said, I will be their God and they will be my people. He promised union and communion with himself for all eternity. These are glorious promises. But I think it's true that in Scripture, God teaches us that an acceptable question when God makes these promises is, how do I know that these things are true? How do I know that these things are really for me? Abraham asked that question in the book of Genesis when God approached him with a covenant and made great promises to him. He said, how do I know that this is true? Scripture makes very clear that our faith is a reasonable faith. What I mean by that is that it is one where the reality of our faith matches what we can reasonably understand and, and obtain by uh, analysis, by, by questioning, by wrestling through these things. And it's right for us to be able to ask, how do we know that these new covenant promises are ours? And how God responded to Abraham and how God responded to the Israelites with Moses is the same, very similar way to how he responds to us in the new covenant is he points to a symbol of death. A symbol of death. And what we'll see in this passage is that God points us to the death of our Savior Jesus Christ as the proof and the surety that God's promises are ours. Now, death, blood, those are things that we don't always want to talk about. Sometimes they're things that make us uncomfortable. But for a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, these things, the death of our Savior, the blood of Christ, are the rallying cry of our salvation. And this particular passage, I don't know if you noticed it, it is saturated with these concepts. And that's how we're going to actually look at our passage through three, these three points. A death redeems, a death inaugurates, and a death grants our eternal inheritance. So first, a death redeems. Verse 15 says, Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Now, since you've heard, no doubt, that Jesus is our Redeemer, you've probably heard this term of redemption, redeeming, those are all the same things. When we're talking about redemption or redeeming, we are talking about a transaction that occurs. Something is given for something else. You know how about redeeming. If you have a coupon and you go to the, the store, you redeem a coupon for a discount, for less cash that you're paying for the thing that you're purchasing. If you buy a ticket to a sporting event, you redeem the ticket in order to gain access into that sporting event. There is a transaction that occurs. And our text says that a death has occurred that redeems them 
from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. We just read in our law passage that the soul that sins will die. God had given his covenant to his people and he said, this is my law. You you must keep all of it, 100%. God later said that he will by no means acquit the guilty, that death is the necessary reward for sins. Paul says the wages of sin is death. But Jesus Christ came to redeem us. He came to, as a substitute. He came to give his life as a uh, substitute in place of us. He said, I will redeem them. I will pay for their death with my own death. And so therefore, the death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. He has served as this mediator, this word that we talked about before, this go-between where he's representing the two parties. And he says, Father, I will give my life to redeem them so that they are no longer guilty. And beloved, what, what, this, what we have to see is that Jesus' death, when he died on the cross, he was actually doing something. He wasn't making salvation possible. He was making salvation possible, but he was also making salvation actual. He was actually paying the penalty for your sin and for mine. He was redeeming his life for yours. And because of his death, we have been freed from the obligation unto death. But also, notice what it says. It says, um, so that those who are called, those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them. It doesn't say that his death redeems everyone. It's a a redemption of some. He redeems those who are called. In this one passage, we see two of our glorious reform doctrines, the doctrine of election that God has chosen. It says those who are called, those whom God calls. Paul says he, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He has called us. We are the elect called out of the world. Those who are called have received this death. He laid down his life. He redeemed his life for his people. That's what we call the particular atonement, him paying the price for his people. And he did this as our mediator to free us up from this obligation to death. And it says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, but beloved, there has been a a shedding of blood. And so we know that that promise that he will forgive our sins, that promise is ours because the debt has been paid. He has secured that forgiveness through his redemption. So a death redeems, but also a death inaugurates. Um, If we go down to verse 18, our author says, Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. Covenants were bloody bloody rites where they would make the promises and then they would seal the promise, often with a symbol of 
blood or death. You might remember the strange occurrence in Genesis chapter 15 when God gives his covenant to Abraham. And Abraham says, well, how should I know? And he says, bring me, he says, bring all these animals. And he brings the animals and Abraham or Abram cuts them in half and he lays them side by side. And then you see this image of a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass between these parts. And you might wonder, well, that's odd. What is going on there? That is a covenant ratification ceremony. What they would do is they would lay the parts down. They would, they would kill the animals and lay them side by side. And then usually the parties in the covenant would walk between them. And it was as if they were raising their right hand and saying, I swear that I will uphold the terms of this covenant and may it be to me and worse, even worse than these animals should I fail to uphold the terms of this covenant. But what was remarkable in that ceremony with Abram, Abram didn't pass between those things. It was only this symbol of the Lord, the flaming torch and the smoking fire pot, images of our God. So that happened in Genesis chapter 15. But what our author here is talking about, where he's, he's saying the first covenant, that is the passage that Elder Minnick just read from Exodus chapter 24. When God had given his covenant through Moses with his law, the Ten Commandments, all those things, he then said, this is the book of the law. This is the covenant that our God has making with you. And they said, all that you have said, all the Lord has said, we will do. And then there was this ceremony where Moses had animals sacrificed and he had the blood put in these basins and he took the blood and he threw some of the blood against the altar and then he put some blood on the book of the covenant, the, the law, and then they said, we will do all these things and he took the blood and he threw it on the people, it says. And what that was, was that was shorthand for what uh, Abram went through. This was a sealing of the covenant where they were saying, may it be upon our heads should we not uphold the terms of this covenant. These, these were bonds in blood saying that the penalty for breaking this covenant would be the curse of the covenant. And what our author is saying is that even this new covenant that we have in Jesus Christ is sealed with blood, but it is better blood than the blood of bulls and goats. It is the blood, the precious blood of our Savior Jesus Christ. For in Exodus, it was animals that were slaughtered. But in the new covenant, our Lord Jesus Christ gave himself to be slaughtered. It was the blood of bulls and goats that was thrown on the people. But in the new covenant, it is the blood of Christ that purifies us and sanctifies us and seals this covenant. You might remember what we say each and every week in the Lord's Supper. Jesus said, he took the cup and he said, behold, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Or in the book of Mark, he said, this is my blood of the covenant. Some, some manuscripts even say my blood of the new covenant. Jesus was giving his blood to seal these promises. He was inaugurating and promising on God's behalf and on our behalf that this covenant would be ours. 
And this covenant, beloved, is received by faith. It is faith in Christ that allows us to obtain these covenant promises. Faith in what Christ has done for us. And faith in God's promises that he will give us these things in Christ Jesus. Which is why we say that those who, only those who have faith in Christ, who demonstrate, who profess that faith in Christ, may come to the Lord's Supper. You might know that we have two sacraments of the new covenant. We have the, the sacrament of baptism, and we have the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, and these are signs and seals of our covenant with our God. And But they are both for God's covenant community, but they, are, they mean different things, and they're received by different groups of people within that covenant. The, God says in the, the covenant of baptism, he says, this promise is for you and for your children. When we come to faith, he, he marks us as part of his covenant community and recipients of his promised blessings. We say that he is, these promises are truly ours. But beloved, what we have to understand is that receiving a promise, being a recipient of a promise, is not the same thing as receiving that which is promised. We must, by faith, grab hold of the things that he promises us in Jesus Christ. I'll give you an example. I may promise to my wife, my wife loves to go to Andy's to get frozen custard. I may promise to my wife, I will take you, I promise you that I will take you to Andy's tonight after dinner to get some frozen custard. She must take me up on that. I cannot force her into the car to take her over to Andy's to receive that frozen custard. She must accept that promise and cling to the promise that that's where I'm going to take her when we leave the house. And same thing with us, beloved. Our God extends to us promises, and he says, these promises are for you, but we must grab hold of them by faith. And it is the blood of Christ that is the sign and the seal in the cup of salvation that these promises are really ours. God says, yes, and amen in the blood of Christ. You have these things in him. To receive the promise does not mean that we've received the thing. Consider Esau. Esau was a member of the covenant community. He had received the blessings, or the promises, but he failed to obtain the blessings because he did not receive them by faith. So, beloved, even for us who are baptized, we must cling to Christ by faith and receive the blessings in him. So we are sealed by his blood we are redeemed by his blood, but there's one third and final glorious thing that our author tells us, and that is a death grants us this promised eternal inheritance. It's back there in verse 15. He says that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. And then he begins to talk in verse 16 and uh, 17, he talks about a will, a will, which may seem like an odd shift. Our author's been talking about covenants, and all of a sudden he starts talking about wills. 
And what our author is doing is the same Greek word, diatheke, is used for both a covenant and a will. These are two different meanings, but he's playing on that meaning to highlight a very glorious reality for us. Now, students, I don't know if you know what a will is. It's short for a last will and testament. A last will and testament is a legal document that is written that declares what is going to happen to all of your stuff when you die. So when I was in the army, my wife and I needed to write a will. The army required us to put together a will. It, it specified what was going to happen to any money that we might have, have left over, what would happen with our house, who would care for our kids. All these things were specified in the will. A lawyer has to write up that will. But we still have that will. That, that will is, it hasn't been put into effect. And the reason it hasn't been put into effect is because I'm still alive. A will only takes effect when someone dies. And, what, and when, when someone passes away, that will is executed and the things are the inheritance to those who would receive it. But notice what he says is that we are, we are receiving a promised eternal inheritance. An inheritance assumes that there is someone who is passing something along and an inheritance is passed when there is a death. Someone must die in order to receive an inheritance. Now he says it's a promised eternal inheritance. We read from Ephesians chapter 1 that God has given us an inheritance in Jesus Christ. And this is an eternal inheritance. It is one that has been promised from eternity past for he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we might be holy and blameless in his sight but it's also an eternal inheritance in that it will never spa- uh, spoil or fade it is kept in heaven for us Peter says so it is this eternal inheritance but who who died who 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 would die to give us this inheritance Well, who but God could give us an eternal inheritance? Who but God is eternal? But God can't die. God is forever. He himself is eternal. And yet in God's immense love, he sent his eternal son to take on human flesh that he could lay down his life so that we might receive that inheritance in him. His death secured our inheritance. And we ought to ask, well, if the son is dying, if the son died so that we would receive this inheritance, what is that inheritance? What is this eternal inheritance? Beloved, in Hebrews, we were taught that the son is the heir of all things. All things. And if he is the heir of all things, and he, is, he died that we might receive that inheritance, that inheritance is the fullness of all that the Father has and has given to the Son that is ours in Jesus Christ. I, I don't know if you ever see the scripture for prayer and medica- meditation at the beginning of our bulletins, but if you look at the one that we had for today, this is one thing that Jesus said before he went away. He said in John chapter 16, he said, all 
that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he, the Spirit, will take what is mine and he will declare it to you. He was saying that in the Spirit, by the Spirit, what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 1, that the Spirit is the deposit of that inheritance, guaranteeing that inheritance. And Jesus is saying, all that the Father has is mine and I will give it to you. Beloved, that inheritance is far more than we could ever ask or imagine. It is the fullness of all that belongs to the Son of God as the heir of all things. Consider this. The, The Father eternally loved the Son of God with perfect fatherly love. And because Christ has come, we have the spirit of sonship. We have been adopted as his children. God so loved us that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life and would be called children of God. That love, that fatherly love that the the son had is ours. Scripture says that in Jesus are the treasures of all wisdom and knowledge. But by the Spirit, we have been given the mind of Christ so that Christ has become our wisdom. That all of our truth is found in him. The Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, was holy and blameless in everything. He has given us his Spirit, his Holy Spirit, to make us holy, to mark us as holy, but also in the course of time to prepare us for glory so that we would be holy and blameless in his sight as he predestined us to be before the foundation of the world. The father watched over his son and protected him and empowered him to carry out his mission on the earth. And scripture teaches us to say that our God is our refuge and our strength and ever-present help in times of trouble. This is an, a part of our inheritance, that promise that God will protect us. The Son shared perfect unity with the Father and the Spirit from all eternity. And if you can bear it, the Lord Jesus Christ prayed in John 17. He said, may they all be one just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. The the Son wants us to share in the unity and the communion with the Godhead that he has had from all eternity. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords and our great high priest, and Peter says that we are a royal priesthood, And Revelation says that we have been made a a kingdom priests to God Most High. And above all, beloved, our Savior Jesus Christ is eternal and he has the power of an indestructible life. And whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. These things are our inheritance that Christ has purchased with his death and he is sealed with his blood. He is not ashamed, beloved, to lavish on us every spiritual blessing in himself. They are ours. He gave himself up to death that we would receive 
all things in him as our, our eternal inheritance. And beloved, I am convinced that this is merely a glimpse because our God says that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no heart of man has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. It is far more abundant than we could ever ask or imagine. And beloved, these things come because Jesus Christ has not only laid down his life, but serves as our mediator. Remember, kids, a mediator represents both sides. Jesus has been our mediator because he, was, he redeemed us from our transgressions, but Jesus also mediated, was God's mediator. He was God's mediator. Because God promised to Abraham Without qualification, I will be your God and you will be my people. And then at the law, his righteous law said, the soul that sins shall die. And so there was a problem because God unequivocally said, you will be my people. And by his holiness, his law must be upheld. And so he sent his son to secure both realities for us. His son became our mediator by taking the punishment because if God did not fulfill his promise to Abraham, then the curses would fall upon his own head. Instead, they fell upon his son's, dead, his son's head on our behalf to reconcile us to God. And so, beloved, these, these things are ours with surety, in the death of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so I think if, as we think about this, I think there's three things that we should confidently say as we consider this, is that this, first, this ought to be our grounds for our sure hope. We have an inheritance. The one giving the inheritance has died. Death is a, one, is a one-way street. He's not... That, that, that death will never be undone. He was raised to new life, but our, that inheritance is ours. And the payment has been made. We have been redeemed. The old covenant has been set aside for this new covenant in his blood. It is ours. It is sure. Our hope is on solid ground. But secondly, this ought to be a source of strong encouragement. We face all sorts of difficulties in this life that just make us question whether or not we will be able to persevere to the end. And one of, one of the things that the Lord Jesus Christ said to his people while he was still in his earthly ministries, he said, he said, fear not, little flock, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's pleasure to give you the kingdom. He knew that it was the Father's pleasure to give us all things, his kingdom forever and ever. And if, it, if he is giving us his kingdom, if he has promised these things and sealed them in the blood of Christ, then how could we doubt? How could we fear? Paul puts it like this. We love this passage. I love reading it. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? 
He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And beloved, that promise, that, that surety is ours. It ought to be yours. And the third thing, beloved, if those things are true, it must well up in our hearts, is praise. Paul in Ephesians said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in him with every spiritual blessing. It ought to motivate and fuel our worship and our praise all of our days. God has taken a keen pleasure in you, and he sent his Son to redeem you for himself, so that these blessings might be yours forever and ever. How could we not be filled with endless praise? And so, beloved, finally, this last thing, we must, we must put our faith solely and squarely in Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. He died to redeem us. He died to inaugurate these covenantal promises for us. And he had died to give us this inheritance. In Christ, we have been given everything. And apart from him, we have nothing. So beloved, if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as your savior, cling to him because God desires delights to give you all things in him and to make you his forever and ever. Beloved, put your faith in Christ for a death has occurred that assures us of these things and by faith we will receive these blessings, these glorious promises in Christ Jesus in accordance with God's glorious grace. Let's pray together.